We play and call it work. Hey everybody, Matthew here from AnyWarGaming.com and welcome to this week's Sit and Talk, their show where we just sit and talk and answer your questions that you submitted on the last Sit and Talk. We do a rotation, so every week it's a different person. Next week it will be Josh, so if you'd like to leave questions here, whether it's on YouTube or on Facebook or on our website, we'll, we'll look for them all. I've sourced questions from all those places to build up nine pages of questions here. And so if you want to leave questions for Josh, you can talk about anything, usually wargaming, maybe business. You can ask some personal questions too. It's up to him what he replies to. And, uh, and a big thank you to Steve last week for having everybody call me Maddie. Um, not everybody did, and thank you for those who didn't. It doesn't really bother me that people call me Maddie. It's just typical Steve to try to find a way to poke at the next person. It's fun though. So anyways, uh, so this show is about an hour long and I just sit here and I answer your questions. Now the same day that this is released, we always have our open vault. So there'll be one of those in the Mini Wargaming Vault. That's our behind the scenes show where you just get to see how we do things or how sometimes we sit around and don't do things and, and uh, just get to know the Mini Wargaming culture. So anyway, sorry, my mic is really bothering me. I'm sure there's lots of static for me doing this. I think my shirt's just loose. There we go. That's a little better, I guess, maybe kind of. So let's start the clock for one hour and I'm just gonna start answering questions until I run out of time or I run out of questions, one or the other, whichever comes first. Shadeline, Matt, I'm toying with the idea of starting Gloomspite Gets Army using only squig units and shamans. It would be manglers, squig herds, hoppers, bounders, snufflers, and shamans. No stabbers or shooters, maybe not even a loon shrine. My question is, do you think this would be a fun army to play with a lightly, within a lightly competitive environment? Would it be too frustrating with all the random movement and non-existent bravery? Uh, actually, I've done that before several times, and it's a lot of fun. You don't need to bring in the, um, the, the, the grots in order to make it any good. Uh, there are certain things in the squigs that are better than others. Mangler squigs are your most efficient points cost thing. They are very powerful for what they can do. Um, there are, if you, if you look up online, you can find some, some builds for 2,000 point squig only uh, armies. The shamans are nice to bring as well because then you can do things like the squiggler, allowing them to run and charge. You can do things like the, great, the, the green hand of Gork or the great hand of whatever, the one that lets you teleport, so that's really handy. Uh, but make sure you bring the War Scroll Battalion that lets the, the I can't remember exactly what's in it, but it basically lets them reroll their moves. Um, but yeah, their leaders are really good. They like the, a leader on a on a Mangler Squig. Uh, you get one on a Greater Squig, and even even the Shamans they all kind of can synergize really well with everything. So you you actually kind of find it fun. The the best things will be your Mangler Squigs and your Boingrot Bounders, they hit the hardest. But your Squig Hoppers, while super squishy and they don't do really much damage, they can do moderate damage. They're super fast, so they're great for grabbing objectives. And then your Squig Herds, they're cheap, um, so you can use them to fill out your battle line and they, they're kind of fun. Um, they, they don't do a ton of damage and they're easy to kill, with, and especially with their low bravery and all of that, but you can always save a command point or two for inspiring presence if there's a key moment. You kind of want them to run though because they do mortal wounds when they run, possibly, but that doesn't usually work as well as it looks like it would on paper. So, but yeah, all squig armies, totally doable and a lot of fun. So you can, and you can definitely make them, I don't know if I would say you'd be able to, I don't think you'd be able to win any tournaments with them, but in a mildly competitive environment, uh, like, like here at Mini Wargaming, I call that a mildly competitive environment. We're not like tournament level net listing, but we're also not just, and, and sometimes we'll bring super fluffy, just nonsense lists, but most of the time we're somewhere in the middle where it's like building decent lists 
that could be better, but that's okay because you know we've already played the better and we're now we're trying something else. Um, it, it works well. It can it can be fun, and all the fly in a lot of the things can be very competitive. Columba Tiberius Dorchester, Esquire. Matt, the Orc Death Watch narrative campaign was what made me a fan of mini wargaming, and after binging the campaign several times, I finally took the plunge to become a vault member. I asked mini wargaming Steve the Mountain about a season two, and I'm a little disheartened that the campaign wasn't as popular with people as you'd hoped. The Death Watch and Steve's Orc Battle Reports are a big reason why I'm getting Orcs now. It has been great to see Scarbog, the Big Mech, and more recently Nobork, the Commando, show up in other campaigns, though. Two things. One, can we see you with your Chaos Knights and Josh with his Imperial Knights take on the studio Orc Gargant? I don't know, are there rules for the Orc Gargant right now? Or would we have to make them up? So that would be one of the questions. I always love seeing it and the Big Bomb will make an appearance. Two, can we get an AOS Death Watch? Your war boss, Hammerthrower, was a fantastic surprise success of a character, and it seems only right he should run with his success. Give him the Orc answer to Sigmar's Stormcast Eternals and Nagash's Osiarch Bone Reapers. The Stonecast Artist. I love that idea. I might just steal it, to be honest. Um, I've, I've actually been trying to come up with a campaign that would feature Hamathroa as the main protagonist. Uh, it's hard to make, I think one of the reasons that the Orc Death Watch didn't do as well is because the protagonist is an Orc. Um, and our campaigns that do the best, typically the protagonist is human, whether superhuman as a space marine or human like an Imperial Guard or Inquisitor or something like that. I think it's just something to do with us being humans and so we relate better to it, right? Like you watch Star Trek and all these other sci-fi shows and while there are aliens in it, it's usually humans leading things, right? It's the, it's the humans in charge. That's you know, almost like what we want to see, like the United Federation of Planets and you know the captains are human. We talk about inclusivity and all these things and yet the captains are exclusive. I know the captains of other ships will be, will be things and their first officer might be Bajoran and all these other things, but the, but the star of the show, the leader of the thing is always human. And I think there's a reason for that. It's not racist. I think it's just because then we relate better to it, uh, which makes it more interesting to us where it's hard to relate to a show or movie or game where you play or the star is non-human. And they do exist and sometimes they can be great, but it's a little harder to, to relate to that. Even like Superman, who's technically an alien, is basically just human with superpowers. Rowan Kennett. Hey Matt, I know Tyranids aren't the most competitive army right now, but I do hope to see you playing them again soon. Nothing better than watching your glorious bugs rip and tear. Oh shoot, I printed these off without clicking the see more. Um, but I can see part of your question. How do you think Tyranids could be brought up to a competitive level? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, so the Tyranids can be played more competitively. They have a, the, the problem with it is that they, unlike the Space Marines and other armies that are powerful like that, in order for them to be played competitively, there's like one or two things you can do. And I'm not even sure if those things are still tournament competitive. I haven't kept up in ninth edition tournaments. Uh, for example, there was the Kraken Bomb, which was you bring a detachment of tons of a big squad of gene stealers, a swarm lord, and you make them kraken because the swarm lord has the ability to let you in the shooting phase. He can choose a unit, and they can move again, including advancing. Kraken, as the high fleet, lets you roll three dice when you advance and take the highest. And gene stealers move eight inches and are allowed to advance and charge. And so you'd have this big blob of twenty of them, and you would roll your awesome movement, make sure you chain them back just enough to stay within the range of the Swarm Lord, 
and then he makes them move again. And you're able to usually move 26, 28 inches. Maybe if you roll poorly, you're moving 24 inches and then you can still charge after that. And 20 gene stealers are very, very scary. So they can tie, and you can, since they have such a big footprint, you can gum up the lines with them as well. So that's usually one. Another one that I've seen is like mass hive guard. Um, that seems to be, but they're, they're, they're rarely just brought on their own. They're usually brought with some sort of, I'll say that use the word cheese, genes that are called build as well or something. Like there's, there's all these just like one punch things or, uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way without changing their codex of making them competitive. I think that if they are going to update the codex, making them competitive is not that hard. It's just like they're, all their abilities are fine. Like there could use some tweaks here and there especially now since um, moving and firing heavy weapons without penalty is just common amongst everything that's not infantry. And so the Tran effects is having had that ability and kind of lost that. Also the, the one rule I don't like in ninth where you can't get better than a plus one to hit or a minus one to hit or worse than a minus one to hit stops stacking abilities from working. Because the Tyran is unlike like Space Marines and a lot of these other armies, when their commanders are nearby, they re-roll hits or re-roll wounds. But the Tyranids never did that. They were always plus one to hit. And I like that better because it's less rolling, which speeds up the game. Uh, but the problem with it, though, is uh, like a Carnifex, for example. If he charges, he gets plus one to hit. And then if you have old one-eye nearby, he'll give them plus one to hit as well. But they can't get plus two to hit because it'll just cap it at my, uh, plus one. They could then use their crushing claws, which are minus one to hit. And so then you're like, okay, well, at least I have that. But before, they would give them more options. And so there's little things like that. They need a, they need a tweak. Um, and maybe things like the new secondary objectives so they can actually do stuff because they always see it's easy to get lots of secondary objectives against them having lots of psychers and monsters but um it's harder to for them to secure the secondary objectives i think if i was uh, to pull them out again because it's been a little while since i played 40k because i've been doing narrative campaigns age of sigmar and now i'm actually right now i'm taking three weeks off i'm on my second week of three weeks where i've been working on web development because our website's been needing some tlc and things have built up so I'm currently doing that but when I come back I'll be jumping right into making an Imperial Knight narrative campaign and so but if I were to bring them out again I think the next tactic I would try would be uh, stop trying to hurt the enemy and just grab the board and you can do that relatively well with Tyranids by swarming the table with Termagants uh, mainly that that's actually the, the main one I would do is just swarm with lots and lots of units of Termagants and then have some help behind that you know you got zone throws or Hive Guard or even um, Exocrines are still decent, um, all that. But we'll see what the Space Marine and Necron Codexes do to shake up the meta. So that might just make it impossible to really play the Tyranids right now in a competitive way. Always fun to play them in a, in a more fun way to. Okay. Dave Gargan. Have to say, I really missed it in talks, so delighted they are back. Well, thank you. Riley Patterson. Oh, wait, that's, a, that's to Steve. No, this is, this is about me, not about Steve. Stop asking Steve questions. Eric Hans Fundersoul. Matt, who is going to take the mantle of Harlequins now that 9th edition seems to favor them? Nobody really wants to. Our collection is a little beat up. It needs to be fixed. I don't know. It's, no, at, at this point, Josh, Dave, Steve, Luca, and... And I, amongst all of us, none of us are really drawn to them. Um, yeah, they're favored. 
I know they can do well, but yeah, sorry that nobody seems to really want to do them right now. And that's, you know, we're, we're not going to force people to play armies they don't want to. We try to get diversity in our armies so that there's interesting to you guys, but uh, there's a lot of armies and there's only so much time that we have. Douglas Pocock, I spend most of my time at work with your videos and I have a question that I was hoping you could address here for me. Throughout your videos, you sometimes talk about re-rolling saves or re-rolling failed saves. It is clear that there is a difference between the two, but I don't understand it. Could you explain that to me? I assume that clarification is in the rules, but I can't seem to wrap my head around it. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's, it's kind of, it, it comes from kind of a bit of a dumb thing in, in both 40k and Age of Sigmar, and that is re-rolls or modifiers happen after re-rolls. And so it's important to distinguish whether you're able to re-roll failed something, like hit rolls. It's not just saves. It would be failed hit rolls, failed saving throws, and failed wound rolls. Or if you can just re-roll hit rolls, wound rolls, and saving throws. And so what happens, let, let's, let me give you an example. Let's say you have a save of 3+, plus, and you're hit with a weapon that's minus 1 to your save. Rend minus 1 in AOS, AP minus 1 in 40k. And let's say that you can re-roll failed saving throws. And so you roll a die, and you roll a 3. So you know the AP of the weapon is minus one, and so you know that's going to fail, but modifiers in both those games are applied after re-rolls. I don't know why they decided that. Like, I know what they said their reasoning was, but it doesn't really hold up. Um, anyways, and so, but, you, but that three is not a failed saving throw before the modifiers. So often we'll say, I have a three up save, AP minus one, so now I have a four up save, and that's shorthand for saying, if I rolled a three, it's no longer a success. But the thing is, before modifiers, that three is still a success. So it's a bit of the fault of how we approach how we're doing things. Like a, a three up save never becomes a five up save against AP minus two, or Ren minus two. It's still a three up save. Your die roll is reduced by two. That's an important distinction. So when I roll a four, I've succeeded on my save before modifiers. So if I have re-roll failed saves and I rolled a three with a minus one Ren or AP, I could not re-roll that because it is not a failed save. So once I've done my re-rolls, now I apply the modifier and now it becomes a failed saving throw. And so really, re-rolling failed saving throws against an AP minus one, and if you had a three up save, is that you can re-roll ones and twos, which is not intuitive. I don't like the way it was written. And for the most part, Games Workshop has been writing new rules to no longer say re-roll failed rolls, it's now just re-roll the rolls. And so if I say re-roll saving throws, you are allowed to re-roll saving throws, then you could re-roll them whether they are failed or successful. And so when I roll that three, I'm like, I know that it's a success right now and it will be a fail, but it doesn't matter. I can re-roll whichever one I want. I could have rolled a six and I'll be like, I want to re-roll that. And sometimes you might actually want to do that, not to the six necessarily. Like maybe, maybe you have a five up save and when, but if you roll a six to save, it does a mortal wound back to your opponent. There's several mechanics that do that. And so you roll your dice, and you really want to kill your opponent, and you're not worried too much about dying. And you roll a five, five, and a six. And that six will do a mortal wound to them, but you know they have two wounds left. So you're like, well, I'm actually going to pick up those two fives, even though they passed, and I'm going to re-roll them, hoping one of them's a six. You can do that if you have a rule that lets you re-roll saves. It doesn't specify whether they're successful or failed. So re-roll, just re-roll hit rolls, re-roll wound rolls, re-roll save throws, basically just means you can treat it the way you intuitively would. If you had a minus one AP with a three up save, then you know you just re-roll ones, twos, and threes. But if there's re-roll failed hits or wounds or, or saves, then if there's a negative modifier to it, you've got to take that into account. 
that you don't get to re-roll the ones that you know will become failed once that modifier is applied. Like I said, super unintuitive. Once you get used to it, psh, no problem. But thankfully, Games Workshop is slowly replacing the re-roll failed rolls, although not everywhere, with just re-roll the rolls. I hope that makes sense. I know it's a very, and this is the problem I have with the rule is that it takes that long to really fully explain. Because if I remember when it first came out, it was all sorts of discussions about if we were doing it right or wrong. And we knew we were doing it right by, you know, you, you apply the modifier after, but it's not intuitive, which is why I don't like it. Captain Penguin. Uh, Matthew, I know you guys are focused on 40k right now, understandably, given the newness of Ninth. but when you start feeling like branching out to alternate games, I'd like to throw my vote towards a Necromunda campaign. I was sad when COVID killed the Crossbones campaign, and I enjoyed your gang war previously. Games like Gorkamorka and Necromunda from you guys was a big reason I initially signed up, and I haven't regretted it since so, as I love your 40k content as well. Our area is starting to have a decent-sized Necromunda following, so I hope one day, with when things stabilize, you can revisit the game. You know what, Captain Penguin? I totally agree. I wish that... Um, like, like, we, we have wonderful jobs here. Being able to do this for a living is great. Uh, but it's not perfect. A perfect. The dream job of mini wargaming would be that we don't take a hit in our vault signups and we play whatever games we want, whenever we want. So we're not forced to get a certain quota done of getting a certain number of 40k games. And when I say forced, I don't mean anybody's forcing us. Games Workshop is not paying us to make any of this. They are not requiring us to make any of this. It's more quotas for ourselves because we know what draws in the views and more importantly, people signing up to the vault. And that is by far 40K. And not just because it's ninth edition, it's always been 40K is the number one. There's been like a small period of time where Age of Sigmar does better than 40K, usually when there's some big update to them. But other than that, it's 40K all the way. And that's just a reality that we have to focus on that. And I don't think that's gonna change for a very long time. And, but if I had my way, I'd be playing all sorts of other games. I think 40K is great, but I'd love to play other games. In fact, I'd love to play other games more right now than 40K. I still, Age of Sigmar is great. I love Age of Sigmar too, but I'd love to play more Gorkamorka, Necromunda, and then also not Games Workshop games too. I'd love to play, um, this is not a test, do another season of that. That was such a fun game to play. But the fact of the matter is we have limited resources. We only have so many hours in the week and so much manpower. And whenever we replace a day, because we can't just do it in addition to what we're doing because we're basically at maximum capacity for our schedule. So the schedule you see us releasing right now, that takes all of our manpower. And so if everything goes right, then we can slowly kind of get ahead and to the point where we could do something else. But it's maybe once every three or four months, we could do something else for a few weeks or like we would do it for a week, but you guys would see it for a few weeks but then we'd have to get back into doing these other ones because otherwise we don't get the vault signups we need to be able to grow our membership base and stay in business. And in the end, that's what we have to do. So I'm disappointed by the fact that I have less control, uh, less creative control over what we can do. But at the same time, I'm very grateful that we're able to make a living out of this. So it's, it's a hard thing to complain about. It's like, oh no, I can't, I gotta play more 40K in Age of Sigmar rather than other games. It's like, well, yeah, it's, uh, it's something I wish that we could do. So, yeah, I agree with you. Mylin, a few questions for you. First, I'm curious, what you're paying for chicken these days? Uh, um, I try to buy chicken at no more than $5 a pound or $11 a kilogram. That's my kind of 
ceiling. Um, I try to pick it up when it's on sale for $4 a pound. Now this is Canadian price. I have no idea what American chicken pricing is like, but Canadian dollars are about 30 to 40% more. So a dollar American, so basically 75 cents Canadian, uh, 75 to 80 cents Canadian is a um, dollar American. So when I say $4 Canadian, that's $3 American. So I try to buy it for $3 American or $4 Canadian. Oh, and I should specify, because that probably sounds like a lot. That's for skinless, boneless chicken breast or skinless, boneless chicken thighs, which is the most expensive, mainly the most expensive type of chicken you can buy. No idea how serious your question was. It seems serious. So I'm going to give you a serious answer. <laughs> if I was buying like whole chicken, well, that's super cheap. Um, or you're buying bone-in chicken breasts or thighs or, um, yeah, then that's, that's way cheaper. But if we're talking about, like, I, I kind of look at chicken breasts and chicken thighs when they're boneless and skinless as kind of like your benchmark of how expensive it is. And that's, uh, I, won't, I don't like to spend more than $5 a pound or $11 a kilogram Canadian. And I liked more to buy it for like $4 Canadian a pound. Next, though, I'd like to know your thoughts on this. If someone walks into a store and buys an item, is that person contributing to society? Why or why not? Um, yes. Yeah. Not as much as the person who created the item, but yeah. Are you, you're coming back to that? Did I have that discussion in a sit and talk? I feel like I had that discussion. I've had that discussion with Steve a long time ago, so I'm not sure if, uh, did that come up in the sit and talk? Like what counts as contributing to society? There are lots of ways to contribute to society. Um, buying things is technically one of them, but it's not as much of a contribution, in my opinion, as, as a lot of other activities. Um, you ought to think of it this way. In order for society to be improved, um, well, if we're talking material here, we're not talking about like people need to be good to each other because that's, that's a whole other moral discussion. But if we're talking about like, economics, in order for it to be improved, more things need to be available. So for example, somebody goes in and um, they cut down a tree. So with, with the intent of it becoming lumber, well, they've contributed to society because, and then the person who then turns it into lumber has contributed to society because then there's a person who can take that lumber and make a house and they've contributed to society because now they've created something that has increased the living standard for people in general. Uh, the person who buys the house and lives in it hasn't technically contributed except for the fact that now they've made it possible for those people to continue doing this. But it's more to the benefit of the person buying than the person selling because the person buying now gets to enjoy it whereas the person selling has to basically use that money to go and do more business so that they can make more money so that they can afford to build or to buy as well. So the best way to contribute to society is to work and create goods or services that improve the, the, the standard of living. And obviously there can be big discussions on exactly what would qualify as that, but I can tell you some things in my mind that don't qualify as that. For example, casinos and gambling, lotteries, they do not contribute to society. In fact, they have a negative impact on both the economy and society because all they're doing is redistributing wealth. Like when somebody's like, I won $10 million in a lottery, it's like, great. So that means that at least $10 million, most likely more like 20 or $30 million was taken from a bunch of other people and given to you and they got nothing in return. So congratulations, we've redistributed the wealth. And on top of that, you then can have the discussion of it creating gambling addictions, um, breaking families, causing people to lose jobs, which then obviously devalues the economy. So things like that in my mind, 
are negative contributions to society. Or like, you know, I could produce narcotics like that are really bad for you, that are not being used medicinally. Um, and I can then sell those and I've produced a product and then given it to somebody, but that can ruin somebody's life. So even though a product's been created, it has a negative impact on the economy and on society as well. So when somebody buys something, are they contributing? Yes, but not as much as the person who's created the thing or who's facilitated the creation, like the person who mined the raw materials or the person who then processes the raw materials into something more usable or the person who then turns those raw materials or those usable materials into a part of the thing that is then used to create the part of the other thing. And think about a car, for example, and all the different raw materials that were mined in different locations and created into processed into certain things into rubber, into steel, into to vinyl, into glass. And then and you have like plants who do nothing but create glass and have other plants who do nothing but create steel. And those workers are all super contributing to society because that material is then used to create cars and buildings and things that are, that are useful to us. Or a scientist or a doctor, uh, they're creating a service. Uh, a scientist can advance things that make our life better. A doctor can treat illnesses and sicknesses or same thing, diseases, whatever. They can help you to, to be healthier and so that's better. So yeah, so, or entertainment contributes to society too because it can help you be happier. Uh, it's an important part as well. So all of these different things. But then there's certain types of entertainment that could be degrading to society and they, so they have, they're counterproductive as well. And we're not going to get into discussion of which ones are and which ones aren't. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my serious answer to that question. So yeah, you can definitely help society by spending money, but you can help society more by working. So like I, I have it's of my opinion that the idea of getting rich young and then retiring super young, that's, that's not really contributing to society. You might think, well, they've contributed all this to, to get rich. It's like, I don't care. There's so much more stuff they can do. Uh, and, and maybe they retire and they go and do a bunch of stuff. Maybe they do um, charity work and that's contributing as well. But I mean like the, the idea of just sitting around and playing golf and going on tropical vacations and stuff. Uh, you might think, well, but they're spending that money and giving those people jobs. It's like, that's true, but they're not, they're not adding anything. They're just, that's, just, that's just money moving around. It doesn't add things. Like, if you really boil it down, <laughs> we're getting really deep into this. Let's say your whole society was just 10 people and nine of those people were super rich for some reason in the society. And so they could sit back and do nothing and they're able to just buy stuff. Well, there's only one person creating stuff. So those nine people aren't gonna be able to have a good standard of living because there's only one person creating stuff. So that one person probably has to focus on, for example, food. But then who's gonna create their homes? Well, I guess we'll make sure, well, I guess the second person will have to then create their homes. But then the other eight people, like they're contributing because they're paying those two people. But what are those two people gonna use that money for if there's not other products being created? So the more everybody works together to, to, to create products and services, and that's like, that could be anything from a service like working in retail to, to um, to a doctor. Like it's, it's not that you have to be at these high level jobs to be super contributing to society. Like everybody has a, a role to play. Whew. All right. Let's uh, move on to something that's a little less heavy. Smiling Kira. Hi, Matthew. On your last sit and talk, you say that you will be playing Mortal and that mini wargaming might do a death watch campaign for all races. Um, so will you do a Tau death watch campaign with six characters based on the six Tau sets with crisis suits? If I were to do a Tau Death Watch campaign, which right now there is no plans, Crisis Battlesuits would be definitely one of the considerations. Um, although I think I'd be more interested in a 
more down-to-earth one where it's like a fire warrior, a crute, a vespid, a... Um, I guess you might have different types of fire warriors. And maybe one of those would be a crisis battle suit, but that'd be like the Terminator amongst the group. And I know that you think, well, the crisis is so much better. And that's fine, whatever. There can be imbalance there. And maybe even an ethereal. Because like right now we have like an Inquisitor and then different kinds of Space Marines. Space Marines are a little easier to kind of get more samesies across the board. But even now, they've, they've got a lot of more variety. Um, so I don't know if I'd do... Like crisis battle suits totally could be one of them, but I think I'd be more interested in doing something that kind of mixes up the different types and make, maybe brings in a different cast as well. Um, yeah, since there are so many customizations that can be done in the Crisis Suit, I think it would fit perfectly with your Death Watch item generator. Um, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Or you can also do, after a certain level, your Tau character can upgrade their Crisis Suit to another type of battle suit. Absolutely. Anyway, ha happy September. Can't wait for more content in October, and may the greater good be upon you. Yeah, I haven't really had a chance to play much Tau, as I've already explained before what I'm currently doing. Boderhammer. Boderhammer? Boderhammer? Hi, Matthew. I know you've been focused on web development lately. That's right. And I don't know much about it myself, but could it, possible, but could it be possible to be able to view the vault videos in theater mode? I personally prefer it over full screen. Um, yes, absolutely. That's something. That's, you know, I should add that to the list of new feature requests. Because that wouldn't actually be very hard to program. I'm going to add that to my list. I can't promise it's going to happen like in this. Yes, you can. Sure. Uh, where's my list? Where's my list? Where's my list? Google Drive. Google Sheets. Web development organization. Requested features. New features. Theater mode. I actually think I could program that pretty fast for videos. We had it on our old site and just never got implemented in a new one. But that is a good suggestion. Done. Updated. Good suggestion. How much time do I have left? Oh, we're about halfway done. So, good suggestion. I will write it down. And honestly, it might actually get done in this bout of web development. So you might see that in the next few days. Maybe. Or I might not get to it and I'll have to do it in the next one. Random Roy. Roll a d6. Answer the corresponding question. Um, well, why don't I just go through all six? I'll do them rapid. How is Mini Wargaming doing? Is there anything your fans can do to help? We're doing, we're doing well. Like, we're not rolling in money. Um, we're stable. Um, it's... It's, it's, it's tough. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people making videos now. There's lots of competition out there. We're doing our best to stay relevant. Um, we have wonderful fans. We have wonderful viewers. We have wonderful vault members. The best thing you can do to contribute would be to be a vault member if you're not already. And if you are already, then if you're looking to contribute more, then the best way would be to share, comment, like our videos, and then maybe shop on our Merch store, shop.miniwargaming.com. There's, there's, there's widgets and dice and shirts and stuff. So that's the best way to help us right now. Um, but being a vault member is definitely number one. Two, which song do you know all the lyrics to? I don't think, I, I don't know any. Well, 
I'm very active in my church, and I was, for the past three years up until recently, I was uh, the children's music leader. And so there's a bunch of those songs I know all the words to. <laughs> and things like Jingle Bells and other Christmas songs, so I guess like those ones. But not like pop songs I don't know all, this, all the words to. Uh, three, what are your thoughts on the new Kickstarter by Hasbro to reissue HeroQuest? I haven't had a chance to look at that yet. I know it exists, and I think that's... Oh, just just from okay, all I know is that Hasbro has started a Kickstarter for they're going to do a Kickstarter on Hero Quest, and that's it. And I think that's a really cool idea, but I don't know what they're doing with Hero Quest. Are they making a new version of it, which might you know then they might mess it up? Uh, how does their Kickstarter work? So I don't, I don't know much about it, so I can't really say anything. But it's an interesting concept. Four, you have to live in the last film you saw. What was it? The Bourne Legacy is the current one I'm watching. So I, I just went through the Bourne series again because um, I liked it a lot. Would I want to live? That's, that's basically just, I guess, do I have to be the secret agent? That doesn't look like much fun. I don't want to be a secret agent. Their, their lives are pretty messed up. Five, what are your thoughts on the new core rules for auras and how do you think this will affect the meta? I think it's a cool idea. Um, I don't. I never liked captains babysitting tanks and other things, given the rerolls. I don't even like the rerolls, to be honest. But I think you can do more interesting things than just an aura of rerolls. Um, but uh, how it'll affect the meta? Well, then you won't see those captains sitting back and babysitting tanks. They'll have to go up with their men, or people will stop using them as much. Like that's that's really one of the only two ways that it'll affect the meta. Either they'll stop using them, or they'll use them where they need to be used with their core units. Six, what is the best practical joke that has been played in the mini wargaming studios? Practical joke. I guess we had this uh, punching bag, the ones that look like the upper torso of a man. I, I've seen them in lots of places. And for a while, they've got a, like a hat and sunglasses and a coat and the people would put it in different places. And it would kind of freak you out because you turn the corner and immediately your brain would register it's a person and it would just surprise you. So, not that funny, but uh, interesting. Navivan, Matt, thank you for all you do. Really appreciate the content and the hard work. Well, thank you. I was wondering, with Wrath and Glory being picked up by Cubicle 7, are there any plans to do a new tabletop role-playing game campaign? I really want to. But the few that we did didn't really draw in lots of viewers, and so it's not something high in our priority. But it, I, I would love to, because everybody here loves to do them. Like, I, I dare say I like role-playing games more than I like miniature war games. We have a weekly D&D group that, um, that, that we do, and I, just, and I GM for that, and I love it. I would love to do another Wrath and Glory campaign. I'd also love to new, do a new Age of Sigmar, or do an Age of Sigmar campaign with the new Age of Sigmar rules by Cubicle 7, but don't hold your breath. I don't know if we'll be doing that anytime soon. Completely understand how much of a time sink this is, and it might not make sense at the moment. However, I think some people really enjoy them and would like to see more. Mentality. Matt, can you and Dave please join the Risk game? I, I saw the title. I didn't actually see the last Open Vault. I wasn't here for it. Where they talk about 40k Risk. So I don't know anything about that. So sorry. I'm Alu55. Hey Matt, do you th what do you think of the new... Oh, we got that as well. Uh, the core keyword stuff. Enjoying producer versus producer games makes the connection between players hilarious since you all are, you are all used to the camera. Well, thank you. We enjoy it too. Mr. Socks, hey Matt, especially love your narrative campaigns and thank you for all the content over the years. You're welcome and thank you. 
Do you see a mini wargaming continue? Do you see mini wargaming continuing to focus on producer versus producer content once COVID is over, or do you see a return to mostly producer versus guest? You briefly mentioned not doing this as much a few weeks ago. What do you think the pros and cons of each option are? Thank you for all the work you guys do. Uh, the producer versus producer is going to become the norm. What I think is going to happen, and it's really hard to say because it'll be new, is that we'll run more events for guests, and some of those will be recorded, and so you'll see that kind of thing. The hard thing with guest versus producer content was, there's a few things. One is scheduling, because it's so erratic, so it's hard to schedule around it when you're not sure exactly what's going on. Two was quality. Um, while their guests are awesome, there's different levels of how much they know the rules, how well painted their armies are, that, all that kind of stuff. What they bring in, like we're kind of at the mercy of whatever they play. Uh, I remember once playing six games in a row against Grey Knights, and I remember that it was even the same Grey Knight army. Six different people, and they all brought the same meta Grey Knight army, and so it's just like, oh, I'm tired of the same thing, but like, what are you going to do? Say, no, you can't come. You've already, you've booked this three months in advance, and you flew here, and you're staying here. So we love playing with guests, but I think the better way to do it will be in a more structured, like, running an event. And the event might just be playing a bunch of battle reports with producers. That might be an event. Like, come on down. Uh, you can you stay in the bunker, play a bunch of games with producers over the week, and then we film those and put them up. And that might be an event, or it might be a campaign, or it might be a tournament, or it might be who knows what. So I think that's where we're going to integrate guests more into our production schedule. And not everything with guests will be filmed. Uh, sometimes they'll just you know, pay, come into an event and have fun, and that's it. Sometimes they'll be filmed, and sometimes they won't. Uh, so yeah, that's the, obviously the pros of having guests is that it saves us money. We can make more videos because when you have producer versus producer, well, if both those producers took a guest, then in the same amount of manpower, you've produced twice as many battle reports. So that's obviously the pro of having guests. And, that's, and honestly, we built Mini Wargaming by having guests come in because we needed that variety. And that's awesome. And I'm so appreciative, so thankful to all those many hundreds, if not thousands of guests who have come to Mini Wargaming over the years. And so I don't want to remove them from our culture. I just, we just need to kind of reorganize it. Seraphin Rules 116. Hey, Matthew, do you think that you guys at Mini Wargaming can do some AOS Path to Glory or the Whisper Engine, the narrative campaign introduced in General's Handbook 2020? You know, I didn't actually look at the Whisper Engine. I should take a look at that. How about some coalition battles? Love the content you guys are putting out. Keep it up. Age of Sigmar right now is not pulling in nearly as many of the views and vault signups as 40k. Having said that, I do plan to, amongst all the 40k narrative campaigns that we're doing, to rotate in some Age of Sigmar. It just won't be every other. It won't be 40k AOS, 40k AOS. It'll be some 40k and then some and one AOS and then some 40k, one AOS. It's just the way it has to be, unfortunately. I wish I could do more of them, but they just don't get the same views and vault signups. And so it's like, do I make the AOS one, which... I would be more interested in doing, or do I make the 40k one, which I'm still interested in doing, and we'll have a lot of fun, and it'll get more signups. That's, it's an obvious winner. But every once in a while, it's like, okay, I've done enough of these. I need to do it. I need variety for myself. I need variety for the audience. But there's lots of channels out there that are mono game. Like, we do two games, so that's twice as good, right? Uh, sometimes some others, but yeah. Sorry about all the sniffling. I have seasonal allergies, so it's not the COVID. <laughs> It's just seasonal allergies. This time of year is really bad for me. Gaza, 288. Hi, Matt. Thanks for keeping us sane during extended periods of being trapped in the house. You're welcome. Two questions, if I may. One, will you please use all your authority as manager, owner, and GM to please make Luca keep and continue to, to vary the beard hair color? Uh, he actually just came in today and he had, a, he had it all shaved off, so there's still some pink on the top. I don't think he plans on changing the color of his hair, so sorry, I can't help you there. Two, how do you feel about the advancing storyline of 40K? 
I'm beginning to suspect something huge for 10th. <laughs> 10th. Like Emperor returning or ascending properly scale. What do you think? Um, I think the story is fine. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I feel like it, it needs a shakeup more than what they've done. And I think the Emperor dying and coming back or dying and being dead or ascending to Godhood would be a good way to do that. Like I've had ideas. We kind of took a, a stab at it in 8th edition with, uh, we, I sent Inquisitor Rin to the future and we had the Shattered Imperium narrative campaign where I had my vision of what would make the 40k universe really cool, the galaxy really cool. And that is you've already got the Sycadris Maledictum that's dividing the galaxy in half. So it would be really cool because what we did basically in that one is the side that has, has Terra was divided into two Imperiums. The one that's like the pure xenophobic Imperium and then the one that's led by Gilliman. And he actually, Tau and Eldar join and other Xenos join as well. And they kind of create more of a federation, like they're good. But they're actually more rife with chaos because they're not as strict. But overall, the living conditions of people are better, but there's more chaos because of that. And then chaos has obviously overtaken that center area and made their own empire. And then on the other side, you can have all sorts of stuff. You can have small... Like, uh, um, it's just fractured, basically. There's not one Imperium. You can, you can, that's where you can tell all the little stories of this warlord who owns five worlds um, or this swath of territory that's over, taken over by the orcs or that, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how I saw it. And uh, the Emperor... I guess, in my mind, what would be interesting is, like, finally kill the Golden Throne. And it's, it's tough. You've got to be very... You got to be very careful when you mess with something that's been kind of part of the lore forever. It's kind of like when there's a, a relationship in a TV show, like a, a girl and a guy who you know, it's like, you know they're going to get together eventually, but sometimes once they do get together, it ruins the show. Now, in some shows, they do a great, great job on that. I think in Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Office, um, but a lot of shows seem to kind of not know what to do after that, so they create issues for them rather than, you know, moving on to something else because that's so much what the show was centered around. So I feel it's a similar thing, like concluding anything like the Golden Throne. It's kind of like the Tyranids. I don't want them to actually reveal what the Tyranids are because I'm worried they'll ruin them. Uh, like how the Zerg are ruined to me from, from Blizzard and Starcraft. Now they became just too human. And I want the Tyranids to always remain this big threat. But it's hard to write stories about them when they're just like this, the way they are right now. And so, I, But I like that. I like how they're just kind of always so alien. So I'd like to see the Emperor die. And then, it's a, it's a coin toss for me. Coin toss? Coin toss. A coin toss. A coin toss. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Whether he dies, dies, and he's just done. But he's a perpetual, so it's hard to imagine that he could be gone forever. So either have him ascend to godhood, essentially forming some sort of entity in the warp that um, kind of create, maybe creates the gods of order, because, you know, why can't the immaterium have gods of order because we call them chaos right and chaos the word chaos means like unpredictable but chaos gods are anything but unpredictable uh, it's actually the, the reason that you can travel through the warp is because it's actually quite it's, it might be a little it might be hard to navigate like it's like the ocean it's hard to predict individual waves in the ocean but you can still sail a ship through it right because you know generally what's happening in certain areas based on the storms and the wind and all that. The warp is pretty much the same idea. Think of it like the ocean, where individually, yeah, it seems chaotic because it is a complex system, but they're not actually, they follow, their, they follow rules quite specifically. Um, otherwise, they would just come into the immaterium whenever they want. 
but they have to follow a specific set of rules to be able to break into the Immaterium. So why not have these counter gods, the gods of order? You can throw in an Eldar god, you can maybe resurrect some old ones. Um, not the old ones, I mean, I mean old chaos gods that are gods of order or something. You know, expand beyond the four. Uh, in Age of Sigmar they kind of did it, right? They, they ascended the rat god for the Skaven. Um, but, you know, kind of make it more broad than just these four things. Because the four things, the four cast gods don't represent everything, right? Like, you can't lump everything into them perfectly. And they even overlap in certain areas. So why not have more of them? Why not make more of a pantheon and make the emperor part of it? Or have him as a perpetual come back um, through some grand ritual or something else. And then, because if he comes back, it doesn't just solve all their problems. Because, you know, he's been the emperor before and it didn't solve all the problems. He sometimes, he actually sometimes created more problems and um, he's just, he's, he's not a perfect person and he has his flaws. So bringing him back could be really interesting to the story and it could feel like it's finally advancing. So you've got to do things like the Tau need to advance. You need the, um, well, they, they've kind of, they're advancing the Necron storyline, that's nice. The Orcs, I don't know if you need to advance them because they're just Orcs, they're fun just the way they are, just being that kind of menace to society. But yeah, everything else would be nice if they could kind of expand on it. So that's what I think. Oh boy. Where am I? Wargamer123, why is it, dear Maddie, why is it that you do not like being called Maddie? I've never been called Maddie before, so it's just weird. I, I, I can't say that I don't like being called Maddie, but nobody's ever really called me that before, so I don't know where Steve got that from, except, you know, Matt becoming Maddie, which is a thing to some people, I guess. Where are we at for time? Oh, yeah, we still got some time. Let's keep going. Zeta, I might actually, I don't know. There's going to be way too many questions for me to get through all of them. Zeta78, hi, Matt. Really enjoying the Death Watch campaign and can't wait to see how it ends. I'm currently, it's got a good ending, by the way. I'm currently working on some background for a custom Crusades based Marine chapter that I want to expand on over time through other armies like Sisters and Knights. The intent is to create an ongoing, overarching background narrative that incorporates multiple factions, but that doesn't conflict too much with the official 40K narrative. Personally, I find it more satisfying to create stories and characters that can fit comfortably within the official canon without too much hand-waving. Do you have any thoughts or tips on this? How much importance do you put on official canon and lore when you're writing a narrative campaign? For the most part, I try to stay within official canon. Like I said, the Shattered Imperium departed from that. I was like, I'm going to go a thousand years in the future and make my own Imperium, my own galaxy. But other than that, the 40k, it's a galaxy, right? And so the nice thing about that is as long as you don't break any like super cardinal sins, like... Um, I don't know, have a corn berserker come out and open a shop in, uh, in, a, in a human planet and, and be a chef. <laughs> like, it, that just wouldn't happen, right? I don't know why. That, that's, that's why that was the first thing that came to my mind. But for the most part, you, the, the more I read 40k novels, the more I see 40k lore released, the more I realize everything that they've said before that was set in stone is not actually set in stone. Uh, you know, like, this chapter is known for they never fall into chaos. But then you read the one book where they do fall to chaos. Or, um, you know, the, the warp works like this. But then you read a book and the warp works also like this. And so you can basically tell whatever story you want within it. You can come up with almost any, anything you want within it and it fits the canon. The galaxy is a big place. There are hundreds of millions of systems. And Games Workshop has written of a tiny, tiny percentage of a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of them. Like, how could you possibly write about an entire galaxy? Like, that would take how much data? Like, just writing about everything on Earth takes up, like, look at the Wikipedia and how vastly enormous that is to cover a, a certain amount of knowledge of everything about Earth. So now multiply that by 
500 million and maybe even more, we don't know. And that's basically the size of Wikipedia would have to be. Like how many, how much data is in Wikipedia and how much would that become if you multiply it by 500 million? And that's the estimated number of systems in, this, in the galaxy, right? Maybe even more, it could be up towards of a billion. So you can find some niche in there. Heck, you can find a niche of 10,000 worlds and tell a story of those 10,000 worlds and have those 10,000 worlds all be swallowed up into the warp. And then you zoom out and it's like, boop, that was a pinprick, wasn't that important. It was, you know, it's, a lot of people noticed it, but the majority of the galaxy moves on as if that never happened. So that's the cool thing about 40K. I really like that. And I like that about Age of Sigmar too, how they went from, in Warhammer Fantasy, as great as the lore was, and I know people will not like me saying this, it still has a pretty close system. It's like trying to do narrative campaigns in Lord of the Rings. It's, a, it's not as big a world, and there's not as many gaps to fill. Uh, like you can, of course, you can go off and go to some other age or some other time, but then you know, you don't, it feels like you're departing from what makes it it. Whereas 40K, that's, there's no problem there. You've got lots of room to wiggle in. Gaz B, hey guys, really enjoying the content across all the different themes. Matthew, which team member would you say is the least Math Hammer player and who is the worst for it? Math Hammer? Are you, I'm assuming by Math Hammer you mean the person who does all the calculation before? Well, I'm the one that's worst for that. I do it all the time. The person who's least for it is probably Josh or Dave. I think they just roll their dice and whatever happens. Also, which Chaos Gods best represents each team member, including yourself, and why? Once again, that's... I know that's just a fun question, but that's tough because the cast guys don't do a good job representing, period. Because like they all like to fight, but Korn really likes to fight. And Zinch likes change, but so does Nurgle, just in a different kind of way. And Slanesh is all about excess, but Korn's about an excess of violence, and so is Slanesh. And Nurgle's about an excess of like pestilence. And so it's like they don't they don't perfectly represent. But just for fun, I've always seen myself as a Zinch guy, you know planning and scheming, all that kind of stuff. Dave definitely is more bullheaded approach to stuff, so more corn. Uh, Josh, Steven, Luca, I don't know, man. Just slanesh all around. <laughs> Skeleton P. Hey, Matthew, do you have any cats? If so, what are their names? I have one cat. Her name is Callie, based off of Paw Patrol. Um, cats are fine. You know, I don't want another one. I'm, I'm not a pet person. I thought I was growing up, but then I became an adult and had pets, and I'm like, nope. But, uh, you know, we have a cat right now. But I think, and she's pretty young. But So in 10 years, when she dies, I don't think I'll want another pet. It just messes to clean up and stuff. I've already got four kids. That's enough mess to clean up after. Miso, miso. Matt, I'm incredibly excited about your Night's Narrative campaign. Can you share any thoughts or ideas on it at the moment? Are you going to go full Game of Thrones anime love triangles? <laughs> I'm not sure if I can introduce any love triangles into my campaigns. We're kind of more focused on the battle part of it than that aspect of it. Um, can I introduce... I don't, I don't think I want to tell you what I have planned for it. All I'm going to say, and you'll find out this pretty soon, is that it's a campaign about a house of Imperial Knights who are betrayed and captured by the Dark Mechanicum. So that's all I'm going to say. Two, a few weeks ago you asked for some ideas for narrative campaigns. One Facebook, did you like any of them? Uh, I, I remember reading through them and that, they seed ideas, so it's hard to like remember exactly which ones, because I kind of go through and that seeds an idea which then creates another idea which then kind of moves down a rabbit hole. So they're always helpful. I like doing that because it's always, it, it helps. Sometimes it's just like to read through them all 
just to kind of get my brain going as well. There's always more ideas than time. Three, have you been reading the Siege of Terra series? I have not. Or any other recent Black Library books? I've purchased the latest um, one about Blackstone Fortress and I've read like the first chapter. I haven't gotten too far into it. But I haven't read a lot of uh, Black Library books recently. Four, are you looking forward to the next Stormlight Archive book? I haven't actually read the latest one. I love the first book. I just, the second one just didn't do it for me. I don't know what, what it was. It's just, I read the entire thing and I enjoyed it, but I just, I, I need to try again because I really like Brandon Sanderson. Uh, Brandon Sanderson said that when he wrote Way of Kings, he thought no one would like it. What story-wise do you think makes it so good? Um, well, he's just good at writing the characters, right? Like really believable characters. So I think that helps. Five, are you missing D&D? No. We play it every week. Just not business. I do it for fun. We're playing tonight, actually. It's Thursday. I'm filming this on Thursday. Hope you and your family and all mini wargaming are doing well during this weird world we're all in. Thank you. We're doing as well as we can. I'd, I'd say we're doing well. Especially now that the kids are back to school. Oh, so much better. Mentality. Matt, I know those eating contests got gross, lol, but they were so funny and the one where Steve tried to kill Quirk when he was stuck. They added a great depth to see producers doing other stuff. Did, did they get good viewer signups? Well, no, they don't get any vault signups because there's no real vault component except like a little behind the scenes. Uh, it's more just like the fun videos to make. Um, have you thought about doing any more of that type? That's more Dave's thing. So yeah, the open vault is great to have back. What about a contest of liar's dice? So each contestant fills a balloon with something and then you roll randomly and number them. As people get knocked out, they get a corresponding balloon popped over their head. Last one standing gets away clean. I would say tell that idea to Dave. Get on one of his Shrine of Chaoses and tell him that idea. <laughs> and also Mentality says, Hey Matt, could you give everyone on the staff a big thank you from all us viewers? I know it's a job, but it's also a window into a happier place for us, and you guys all deserve a round of applause for all that you do. From the humble beginnings at you and Dave's church to all characters that have come and gone and those that have stayed, thank you. Well, thank you, Mentality. And a big thank you to everybody who's been with us along this journey uh, at one point or another being vault members or regular viewers or commenters or just lurkers. All of you, thank you so much for joining us for all of this. Commissar Wolf. Hey Matthew, what are some changes you'd like to see in the Gene Seether Cults and Tyrannus for 9th edition? Uh, well, <sighs> dude, Gene Seether Cults, where do I start? They just are awful right now. And what makes them awful, I think it's just you, you can fix everything with points adjustments, but it would be cool to see, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, points adjustments would be nice. Making things cheaper would be, would be helpful. They just don't have the punch they used to as everything else is scaled up and they have not. They're such a cool army though. I love that army. I love its play style of just popping up all over the place. So I like, I, it's almost fine. Everything about them is fine. It's just they're too expensive. So when you put a two 2,000 point armies on the table, there just isn't enough of them. They're too easy to kill. And they don't quite hit as hard as they used to. They used to be terrifying. Like, oh my goodness, that guy comes in with two strength four rending attacks. He's like, that's fine. But that space marine has like a bajillion attacks back and you're only toughness three with a five up save. So you need the rending to even hope to hurt that space marine. Who's got two wounds, by the way. And then he just goes, slaps you with his non-power fist, his regular strength four, butt of his bolt gun, and he takes you all out. And yeah, there, there are certain things in Gene Cult that are good, but yeah, getting aberrants of big points drop would be nice. Um, 
I don't want to see everything escalate. That's the problem. I want to see everything else de-escalate. But if they're not going to do that, then the way you do it is you make you got to make the genes that calls just a little more. I don't. They don't need to be more resilient. I don't want them to be more resilient. I don't want to see all of a sudden all the hybrids going around toughness four and two wounds. That'd be boring because then you'd have to upscale their points and then you'd have less of them and just 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 drop their points. Uh, Tyrion is the same thing. There's some adjustments that need to be made here and there, but I like their rules the way they are. Just adjust their points so that they are competitive with everybody else. A lot of things can be fixed with just points adjustments. Rules adjustments are nice, but there's not anything particularly bad rules-wise about them. It's just they don't like their their points don't speak for their their power level. Brandon Montgomery, dearest Matthew, thank you for all that you do. Let's just say you're a tyrannid. Who are you eating first? Ah, <laughs> uh, who's in genetic material? Let's see. I'd, I'd want to start with somebody really smart because then I could more easily take over the rest of the world. So specifically, if I was a gene stealer, I would, I would try to grab some super smart scientist. Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'd start with him. But I wouldn't eat him. I'd just implant and take over his brain. And then, um, and then boy, do I have a lot of control. And then probably a couple politicians. Um, but not like the presidents, but like their advisors, so you can just kind of whisper in their ears, and so that way, you know, nobody ever suspects. So yeah, so I'd start there. You go for the brawn later on, because, you know, whatever. You can beat brawn with brains in a long-term strategy. Uncle Wiggums, hey guys, I just want to start, start off by saying that you've made surviving the COVID pandemic so much easier with all the battle reports coming out, and for that reason, I'm a bronze member. Well, thank you, Uncle Wiggums. Anyway, the narrative campaigns, the Emperor's Champion, and the AOS matchup are my favorites, and I was wondering if you had tried doing a mix of those two yet. I was trying to come up with a campaign that could incorporate the simplicity of the Warcry battle system with the narrative system in AOS, like the artifacts, command traits for heroes and leaders. Any suggestions or a point in the right direction would be much appreciated. I think you'll have a hard time incorporating the Warcry system into a more complex narrative campaign because that system is designed to be simple. It's overly simple. AOS is already a slightly simplified version of 40k, which is not a bad thing. And Warcry even takes that a step further. And so, whereas like Kill Team for 40k doesn't make things simpler, in some ways it makes it more complex. And so that opens it up for more narrative stuff. So I wouldn't go for Warcry. I would, AOS scales down just fine. Um, I introduced things, I remember some of the AOS campaigns I did. The Watchers and Death campaign, I introduced something called Minions, which I got the idea from 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons. And that is that if you hit this thing, it dies. You don't have to roll to wound. Um, and they don't get a save. And it's just to represent so that you can have just a few guys mowing down a lot of them. But those things still are a threat because they still come in and hit and they wound and all that kind of stuff too. So so um, I, I really liked that aspect of it. Other than that, AOS scales down just fine as long as you're not bringing the big stuff into smaller games, obviously. Thanks again for all the reports and stay safe, y'all. P.S. I think it would be hilarious if y'all wear different cat shirts one day without telling Luca and seeing if he notices. <laughs> that would be funny. Kazanski, hey Matty, direct rage at Steve. Thanks for keeping on keeping. Thanks for keeping on keeping on. Also during Corona, and great to see you guys back and providing narrative content again. A possibly tough question. I remember years ago you used to be very critical on the background of Dark Eldar and Slanesh, and even refused to film them. Well, I didn't refuse to film with them. I just didn't want to play as them. Given you guys now film both seemingly equal to other races, has your opinion on this topic or your feelings towards them changed? Have you warmed to the background, changed your views, or have you swallowed your pride in the interest of the company and viewership? Um, 
I'm not a fan of all the BDSM kind of stuff with the Dark Eldar and Slanesh. I think it's, and I know people's counterpoint is like, but you're okay with violence. And it's like, whatever, we can go back and forth on, on each of those things. But that's something that I've always been uncomfortable with. And I see that in a lot of other miniature war games as well. 40k is actually one of the, the lesser of the offenders. Like it's, just, it's just a typical gamer kind of thing. Like there's been changes to that. But traditionally, females in games are always, you know, large chests, skimpy armor, that kind of stuff. And so that is just how they're depicted. And, and you know, the Slanesh and Dark Eldar were created back during that time, so it makes sense that that was incorporated. But I just, I'm disappointed that they haven't moved on from that. In fact, they've just embraced it more with the new Slanesh stuff. Like, Slanesh is about ex excess, not just in sexuality, but in other stuff too. So it'd be neat to kind of introduce those other traits. Um, so yeah. And everybody thought that they were getting rid of that when AOS happened, when killed Slanesh, but Slanesh is really just in prison. He's, he or she's going to come back and it'll still be there. So I, I still, you know, uh, you're not going to see me focus on it very much. I'm not a big fan of it, but I'm not going to ban it. Um, especially because we're playing with the miniatures, which, you know, doesn't quite show the, the grotesquity of it. So that's all I'll say for now. Corn87, hi Matt, how many times do I have to watch your weekly AOS Vault Battle Report to encourage Mini Wargaming to make note that make more than one per week. Um, it really comes down to Vault signups and how many people we get signing up and people watching it. And the numbers just aren't quite there to be like, yeah, we should definitely cover this game more. So unfortunately, that's just it. I'm just about out of time. I am out of time. So let's answer one more question. P. Fisher, yo Matt, I have become the DM in a very casual family group of D&D and we're all pretty new to the game. I have enjoyed your explanation of rules of various gaming formats in the past and was hoping you could give a simple quick rundown of what my players need to roll to cast spells. I always seem to feel I'm getting the rules wrong in the moment, even though I have reviewed them various times. Anyways, keep things rolling at Mini Wargaming. Um, for spell attacks, uh, there's two different kinds if, if a spell is going to do some sort of offensive stuff. Either you have to make an attack roll or the opponent has to do a saving throw. The way you calculate those numbers, the attack roll would be whatever your spellcasting ability is, like for example, bards are charisma, uh, druids are wisdom, um, wizards are intelligence. So let's say you're a wizard and you have an intelligence of plus three, and let's say you're level one. So you have a proficiency bonus of plus two. So if you have a spell attack, like chromatic orb or firebolt or something like that, you'd roll a d20, you'd add your intelligence of three, and your proficiency of two. So be a plus five. So if you have like a weapon attack that's like your strength is plus three at level one, you'd be a plus five to hit with that, right? Same thing with the spell attack. Now spells, unlike weapons, you don't add your modifier to the damage. You just do whatever damage it says. So Firebolt does, I believe, D10, 1D10. So you wouldn't add your intelligence modifier on top of that. It doesn't say anywhere that you do that. The other type of spell attack would be something that forces a save, like Fireball, for example. Usually they're area of effects or they're things that affect the mind, things like that. So a Fireball hits an area and everybody inside the area has to make a dexterity saving throw. Well, the DC, the difficulty of that saving throw, this depending once again on the person casting. We'll say it's a wizard with a plus three intelligence again. Well, the way you calculate the spell DC, it tells you in the book, it's eight plus your modifier, so it's plus three, so 11, plus your proficiency, so if you're level one, plus two. So you have a DC of 13. So they'd have to get 13 or higher on a dexterity saving throw or take full damage for the fireball, otherwise take half damage. So it's just like weapons. And so with your weapon, it's a strength or dexterity plus proficiency if you're proficient in it. 
Well, with spell attacks, it's whatever your spell casting modifier is, usually wisdom, intelligence, or charisma, one of those three, plus your proficiency. And that's it. That's, that's, that's as pretty straightforward as it goes. If it says to make a spell casting ability check, then you just add whatever your modifier is. You don't add proficiency. Uh, so for example, um, counterspell or dispel magic asks for a spell casting ability roll. Well, you don't get to add your proficiency for that because it's not an attack roll. So you're not naturally proficient in it, even though it feels like you should be. Um, that's what you, you just roll your d20 plus your intelligence or wisdom or charisma, which whatever one it is. I hope that answers that. We are out of time. Remember, next week is Josh. Leave your questions below for him. Thank you so much for joining me in this week's Sit and Talk. Make sure you go check out the Open Vault, which is available right now on the Mini Wargaming Vault, or behind the scenes. If you're not a Vault member, you can still click the link and get a free seven-day trial. Thank you so much for watching. Happy Wargaming.